morning. I hope you got a friendly visit at the front door on your way in and a bulletin and a study sheet with that. And if you got a study sheet and you've got a pen, take that study sheet and turn it over to page two and under section five, this is an errata. So section five, the reference that says second Kings two, four should be first Kings two, four. Okay. You'll be confused if you try and look that up later. By way of introduction, uh, the book of Exodus tells the story of the Exodus. I won't go into that uh, much, but just to say, you know, God sends Moses down. Moses and Aaron perform the ten mighty miracles. Death of the firstborn is the last one. The Passover, Passover lamb, the blood of the lamb preserves the, those in the Jewish household. Otherwise, the firstborn in each home die. And it's at that point that Pharaoh is finally willing not only to let Israel go, but he actually wants to drive them out, which is exactly what God said would happen. So it looks like Israel, they've been enslaved, and all of a sudden they're going to waltz out, go through the wilderness, and head up to the promised land. And as they leave, uh, by God's design and Moses' leadership, they go to the Red Sea, and that's where they camp. They're camped at the Red Sea. And it looks okay until it doesn't because they realize the Red Sea's in front of them and Pharaoh changed his mind, as God said he would. And he has sent his army after the Jews. So instead of waltzing out, they now face the Red Sea in front of them and now the the army of Egypt behind them. This is not an army. The Jews are not an army. So they're between a rock and a hard place and it looks like they've gone from the frying pan of Egypt into the fire, the army's going to get them. And the text says that they are, or they feared greatly. That's the phrase used. They feared greatly. And Moses tells them this. He says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, Exodus 14, 13. See, the, the thing was, they were exactly where God wanted them. God wanted them between the rock and the hard place. He wanted them bound up against the Red Sea with the army coming in. That's exactly what he was after. His purposes were not somehow on edge. Things weren't falling apart. The plan hadn't failed. This was exactly what God wanted. And so, just by way of introduction, when the bottom falls out for you and I, when we need deliverance, whatever that is, we'll talk more about this in a little bit, uh, what's our response Now, sometimes the things that occur to us, that initial response is we fear greatly, right? Something happens, it could be financial, all kinds of things. We face challenges in life. Life on planet Earth is a tough thing, even for the best of us. Even as good as we have it in the States, all of us still find uh, find challenges that come up and we wonder what to do. And, And often, fear is that first response. But even if you get that initial pang of fear, anxiety, what follows? So, how are we facing the challenges in our life when we're between the rock and the hard place, when life is difficult and then it doesn't get better, it gets worse. How are we responding? That's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to be in Psalm 56 this morning. We're looking at a time in David's life in which he feared greatly, although he eventually trusted in God and God delivers him from his enemies the setting for this is 1 Samuel 21, 10 through 15. I'm not going to read the passage, but just very briefly, 
Uh, David is still young, but he's been the leader of Israel's army, and Israel's had great success under David's leadership under King Saul. But King Saul, you know, he's not a healthy guy. He's, he's not a good man, and all that has fallen apart. And he's already, at this point in David's life, he's tried to skewer David with spears. He's tried to kill David repeatedly. And so at this point, he's trying to kill him again, and David flees sort of from the frying pan, the rock, and then he goes, don't ask why, to the city of Gath. It's a Philistine city. We'll look at that again. Goes to the city of Gath, and that's the fire, and that's the, the hard place. So he goes from one threat on his life to another threat on his life. And so his initial response is he feared greatly, just like the Jews between the army and the sea. He fears greatly, but then he's going to talk through what did it look like for him after the fear hit, what did he do? How did he face it? And what kind of example is that for you and I? That's where we're going this morning. Uh, let's see. Uh, Psalm 34 also comes out of this same incident. Alan Ross's summary is like this. He says, Although arrogant adversaries lie in hiding to destroy him, the psalmist petitions God to destroy them. We'll talk about that affirming his confidence in God's word and his security in God's care and vowing to praise him for delivering him from death. And if you got your study sheet, you know this. We'll look at this in five different sections. So apps open or Bibles open, Psalm 56. That introduction again is to the choir master. So this was written to be sung by the congregation of Israel. It's to the dove on far off terebinth. I think Sean knows that tune. Maybe we'll sing that later. It's Some of you are awake, yeah. Uh, what does that mean? Don't really know. It's probably a given. It's a musical thing or it's a melody. They know. So it's instruction for singing. And then it says it's a miktam or a miktam of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. That term miktam, we don't know what it means. Just like the melody line, what did it sound like? I have no idea. What does miktam mean? We don't know. But we do know this. It occurs only in six songs. They are all laments written by King David. So people guess at the mean, but don't really know. So verses 1 through 2, kicking this off. Uh, David wrote, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long. An attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. You don't get this in the English, but Psalm 56 is exactly in the Hebrew, the beginning of Psalm 51. So be gracious or have mercy, Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, have mercy. That's the same Hebrew entrance to Psalm 56. And it's this desperation in both occurrences that lead David to start out both songs the same way. God, I'm in need and I need your mercy. I need your grace. I need you to interact for me because I'm incapable of saving myself or bringing to pass my own deliverance. So it's got to be you. In Psalm 51, it was David's sin. We looked at that last week. David's sin, he's, Nathan's confronted him, he feels the guilt and shame of his sin, and it's under that desperation that he approaches God. This time, it's the desperation of human attackers really trying to take him out, just end his life. And that's the desperation that leads him to God in this song. In verse 1, David's attackers, it says, they trample on me. This word has the thought of they're pursuing me to crush me. 
You know, occasionally you read about a soccer event that goes bad and there's a stampede and people are crushed to death under these feet. That's sort of the, the imagery here. He says, they oppress me, they're pressing me, and they're trying to pin me up so there's no place else I can go. Remember, at this point, he's fled from one place, Israel, his home, to another, Gath, and he realized, I'm not safe here. I've got to flee again, but these people are trying to pin me in so there's no escape. Now, Dave, we know this is written from the perspective of Gath, in the city of Gath, but as far as the people he's describing, some commentators think that he's including Saul and Saul's servants that have been pursuing him, which I think is likely, and that he's really incorporating both the past oppression from Saul and Saul's soldiers as well as what's happening to him in Gath. In that setting, he's looking at what's going on now and what have I been fleeing from. In either case, David is far outnumbered and men are chasing him. I like to think it's like hounds chasing a deer. You know, where am I going to find a place? Or a fox being chased. Where can I find some refuge to get away from this harm? Look at verses 3 and 4. It's my grandson. I don't know if he agreed with that point or he didn't. We'll try and do better. Verses 3 and 4, David writes, So when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? So verse 3 when I'm afraid, David's saying, like right now. When I'm afraid, like right now, what do I do? This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to trust God. While really afraid, he chose to trust God instead of merely reacting to real threats. And guys, this is one of the challenges we face all the time when something is coming in that we can't deal with on our own. How do I think about it? You know, a lot of times, once the gate of fear is open, sometimes we never recover. But what we want to do is we want to stop and we want to assess. We've got to hold our own thoughts captive for that moment and stop and say, how should I think about this? The ladies at the Winter Conference had a great message on uh, not listening to my own thoughts, but speaking to my own soul. So what should I be telling myself? That's what David is going to do here, as you'll see. Not just what's going through my mind, the emotions, but what should I be thinking about and what should I be telling myself. Alan Ross says this, describing this, he says, he, David, confidently relies on God for protection, therefore he's not afraid. The crisis is not diminished, so the situation hasn't changed yet. The crisis is not diminished, his confidence is in the one who can bring it to an end. This does not mean that he had no fear at all, just like we feel those pangs, that anxiety, that worry, but rather, he did not yield to it, but lived above it. So as you'll see, he's going to talk to his own soul. He's going to instruct himself in this moment of fear. So what helped David move from fear to faith? What mental or spiritual discipline enabled him to live above that initial pang of fear and anxiety? Now, Scripture talks about this in other places, but Psalm 56 is a good lesson on how to respond in fearful situations. Uh, David moved from fear to faith through praising God and specifically praising God for God's Word. I'm going to pause here for just a minute. There's a literary device that's used throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament, called chiasm. And chiasm is a way of making a point 
within a larger context. And usually what you find is sort of, it's usually this, it's point-counterpoint. And then usually there's a direction that the chiasm is meant to go. So it's point-counterpoint, as you'll see here, point-counterpoint, and then what's in the middle? Where, so in, in the Greek, the key would be for chiasm. What's in the middle where those things cross? What point am I supposed to get? So I've, I've looked, uh, I use multiple commentaries when I do these all the time just to keep myself honest, right? Make sure I'm not missing a big rock. None of, nobody else is talking about this, but this is Mike's take, his interpretive take on chiasm in Psalm 56, okay? So look at verses 3 and 4. In verse 3, when I am afraid, that's the point. The counterpoint in verse 4 is, I shall not be afraid. When I am afraid, where do I end up? That's where I start. When I'm afraid, where do I end up? I shall not be afraid. The second point is verse 3, I put my trust in you. The counterpoint in verse 4 is, in God I trust. And what's in the middle? Verse 4, in God whose word I praise. In God whose word I I praise. That's the transition for David. I start out afraid, I end up unafraid. Well, what's in the middle? What's the transition point? In God, whose word I praise. So this is David speaking to David's soul. This is David taking his thoughts captive and saying, I'm not going to let my emotions run free, but I'm going to praise God and I'm going to take the instruction of his word in this moment. That's what's going on. So he moved from fear to faith by remembering and praising God and God's Word. And you know, if you know anything about David besides that he's a shepherd, he loved God's Word. He memorized God's Word. He meditated on God's Word. Psalm 19 is sort of his peon of praise to God's Word. You know, God's perfection in creation is the first half, and God's perfection in His Word is the second half. He loved God's Word. So when this fear rises up, David has this reservoir of the knowledge of God's Word to rely on. And so he stops that initial thought of fear and he takes in the reality of God through God's Word. As David found himself between a rock and a hard place, a situation where he appears to have no escape, I wonder if he was thinking, he knows God's Word, of the Exodus account. So Israel's between a rock and a hard place. They have no place to go. But David knows God delivered them. He's in a place where I can't go home. I'm not safe there. Now I fled to another country. My enemies, where he's recognized. And I can't stay here. Where am I going to go? Well, maybe just like the Exodus account. God's going to deliver me in a way I can't see now, but that's what he's going to be up to. God's word. He could have. I don't know that he did, right? But he could have. Or here's another thing. And this, this perhaps is more likely. When Samuel, the prophet, was still alive, he'd come to Jesse's household and said, I'm going to anoint one of your sons the next king. And that was David. So David heard God's word through the prophet Samuel say, you are the next king of Israel. And he anointed him for that. Now at this stage in his life, David knows this, I'm not the king of Israel. I've been selected, I've been anointed, but Saul still reigns as king. So he might have said to himself something like this, God who can't lie has said I'm the next king. I haven't begun reigning as king, therefore God's going to deliver me. I don't know what it looks like, I don't know how that's going to come about, but I know God will deliver me because what he has said hasn't been fulfilled yet. So in the midst of this initial pang of fear, 
he takes into account God's Word, and through God's Word, he moves from fear to faith. I'm praising God through the reality or the truthfulness of his Word. His move from fear to faith was born out of his knowledge and confidence in praise for God and specifically God's Word. Faith overwhelmed fear because David knew God through God's Word. Romans 10, 17, hopefully one of your memory verses, faith comes by hearing. Now Romans 10 says, and hearing by God's Word, but for a lot of us it's reading God's Word, it's meditating on God's Word. That's the difference, that's transition from fear to faith or from fear to trust. David could move from fear to faith because he knew God's word and trusted the one who gave it. This is one of those spots where I say, are we reading our Bibles? Do we read our Bibles? So if this happens to you tomorrow, do we have a reservoir of truth from God's word by which we tell our fears to hold on and then we address the issue from the vantage point of what God has said in his word? Because that's what David was able to do. So if we don't have that, guys, we're compromised in every emergency that comes up because we don't have the mechanism in place that David had. I know God and I have the confidence in him moving, taking care of it in whatever way. And by the way, we want to be careful here. This is not uh, green lights and blue skies. You know, there are Christians all over the world today that are being martyred, that that are suffering, that are in prison. We're not saying in this context, our context, that God's promises promise all of us uh, blue skies and green lights and, and grand life and the things we want. We're not saying that at all. We are saying this. What does God say about our situation? What thought, the truth from God's Word, should I be replacing the fear in my heart with? That's the thought. So in David's life, he knew, I've got to live for another day because I've got to reign as king. That was the truth of God's word he needed. The Apostle Paul brings something up just like this too. And I'm not sure there's been anybody that's lived a life as hounded, as chaste as as Saul, Paul the Apostle. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 1. He had come out of Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, and he says this to the Corinthians. He said, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. He just felt like we're not even going to get out of this situation alive. We're dead men. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Isn't that good? So Paul says we're right where God wants us. Uh, Israel was right where God wanted them at the Red Sea. And Paul says, I'm right where God wants me because this is what he's doing. He's making sure we don't rely on ourselves, but on him. So he submerges us underneath impossible situations because he wants to turn our eyes from our self-sufficiency to him. And he does so through his word. He said, he delivered us, past tense, from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. Now remember, this is the guy who's beheaded by the Romans. Okay, this is the guy who's martyred for his faith. So deliverance here doesn't necessarily mean my life, but it definitely means my life of faith, my relationship with Christ. 
On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. On Christ I've set my hope that he'll deliver us again. And when he, when he says this and hopes this, he's thinking about Christ. And, and when Jesus was between a rock and a hard place, when he went from the frying pan to the fire, he went from life to death. And so everybody thought it's over. He's destroyed. And what do you find? Nope. Jesus conquered death. So Paul knows the one I'm following, even if my life ends, he's the one that gives life again. He has resurrection life. That's the Christian's hope today, isn't it? In that same letter, chapter 7, verse 5, he says this, When we came into Macedonia, modern-day Greece, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without friction with other people externally. And then he also says, and fears within. So the apostle of faith in the New Testament, he still says, we've been through these situations where it looks like life is over, we can't escape, and I've got conflicts without, that was David, and I've got fears within, I'm afraid, that's Paul, it's both of them. All of us are going to go through these situations. He says there though in chapter 7, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us. God comforted us and he did so through Titus, that's another story for another day. So in our desperate, fearful times, can we do the same? So guys, do we know enough of God's word to confront our fearful situations? When fear rises up, do I have anything by which the truth of God's word, by which I can confront that temptation to fear? Do we pray God's word when we're oppressed, harried, and threatened? This is another great thing, by the way. Uh, we should pray just as a norm, right? But when we're feeling underwater, when fear of the future, what's going on is the deal. Guys, there's nothing like getting on our knees and praying. And, and I say this for two reasons, two particular reasons. One is when you pray and you give God that thing, what you'll find is your soul is lightened. I'm not carrying it myself. I talk to God about it. I feel better. My situation hasn't changed, but I feel better. The other thing, at least for me, is this. When I'm talking to God in prayer about that situation, inevitably what God says about it comes to mind. But that's because I've been in my Bible. So I'm praying about a topic and then that starts, you know how your, the thoughts start flowing, right? And then you think about what Scripture says here or there about your situation. And then you can pray that back to God. So when this hits, we want to stop. We want to collect ourselves. We want to pray. We want to get, get, get God's mind from God's Word. What does God's Word say about any of the distressing situations you and I face now or will face in the future? So financial hardships, marital troubles, children who aren't walking with the Lord, parents who aren't walking with the Lord, accusations that might destroy, physical health, mental health. You know, what is it we're facing? What is it you're facing? And what does Scripture say to that or about that? And I'm not giving any answers here. So what's your situation? What does Scripture say about it? You know, one of the great things about the Gideon New Testaments is that they've got all those Scriptures referenced in the front. You know, are you feeling lonely? Well, here's a Scripture to read. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. What's my situation? What does God say about it, either specifically or generally? Also, too, I want to say this. More than reading our Bibles, is our faith in God and His Word focused in the person and work of Jesus? Remember that Jesus came... To the Jews, a very religious group, they read their Bibles and they rejected the Word of God. They said, we love God's Word, but they rejected the living Word of God. This is not a winning formula. So 
we, we believe this is God's Word, but we reject the living God, the Word of God, John 1. This doesn't work. So really for us too, the question comes down to this. Am I interacting through Christ in my relationships generally and specifically in my times of acute challenges? Have I trusted Christ for salvation? Guys, everything we say from Scripture for believers, it, none of it applies to you if you're not a Christian. If you haven't come to that point where you say, Lord, I'm a sinner, think of Psalms, uh, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. Have we come to that point where we say, Jesus, you're my Savior, period. Are we facing life because we've been forgiven and we know it? And then are we, are we looking at those situations that we face through the eyes of faith in Christ? He's always with us. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. God engineers and He means to use our rocks and hard places, our frying pans and fires to draw us to Himself through the truth, instruction, and comfort of His Word and our relationship with Him through Christ. So when I am afraid, I will put my trust in God in God whose word I praise. Uh, look at verses 5 and uh, 6 and 7. David describes a little bit the attacks. What did this look like? What did this feel like? He says, All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. And then in verse 7 he says, For their crime will they escape? In wrath, this is a prayer, cast down the peoples, O God. So verses 5 and 6, David's saying this is what it looked like, this is what it felt like. He says they try and injure my cause. Anything I'm for, they're against. Uh, their hearts toward me are evil. They hate me. They have malice towards me. These aren't accidental injuries to David. These are people who want to harm him. They stir up strife and trouble. They're looking for ways to bring trouble to me. Uh, they lurk. They're around the corner watching me. They want to set an ambush for me. Uh, they watch and wait in order to harm me to end my life. You know, I read this, and no kidding, my first thought was this sounds a lot like the political scenes that we see across the country today. That it's just, it's taken people. Or how about the cancel culture? Seriously. So if you don't say what I want, I cancel you. I look for ways to put you down and take you out. Guys, this is the culture we live in today. David is facing numerous enemies, all intent one way or another on taking him out. Verse 7 says, uh, David prays, In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. Now, remember, we've talked about this in a previous song. David is God's man going about God's things. So the people who are trying to take him out are opposing God's man and God's plans. So David's prayer, we call this an imprecatory prayer, and this is not uncommon through Psalms or the Old Testament. And an imprecation or an imprecatory prayer is a call to God to let his overflowing wrath or anger against sin be located on the people opposing him or his people or his plans or his will. And for Christians, this sounds like an oddity. And in some ways it is, and in some ways it isn't. I want to flesh this out just a little bit. In Deuteronomy 32, 35, God told the Jews, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. So God was telling them, it's not that they couldn't do justice, 
but that as far as specifically trying to take out their own anger on others in just the right way, God tells us we don't do that very well. So he says, I'm reserving vengeance for myself because he does it well. Well, friends, that same verse is repeated by Paul in Romans 12, verse 19. So God is still the God of vengeance. And in fact, Psalm 18, verse 47 uh, David wrote, God executes vengeance for me on my enemies. He does it. In, verse, uh, excuse me, in Psalm 94, verse 1, it starts out this, God of vengeance, and then it's repeated, God of vengeance, shine forth. It's almost a name for God, that God is the God of vengeance. This means God takes vengeance on the wicked. Now think about this just a little bit. We know today we're Christians, and what did Jesus tell us to do in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Plain, Luke 6, he told us to pray for those who harm us and abuse us, right? And then what does he do from the cross? He gives us an example of what he told us to do, right? So he says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing, right? So he, he does exactly what he tells us to do. Think of this. Um, the or Saul, Saul of Tarsus, you know, was Saul of Tarsus. He was the guy that was wanted to take Christians out, and and then God makes him his own. You know, in Acts nine, strikes him down, and says, "You're mine." What would have happened to Saul of Tarsus if God didn't make him his own? If he didn't come to saving faith in Christ, uh, his sins wouldn't be forgiven. And just like David's adversaries, if they never repented and believed in Yahweh, the living and true God of Israel, what, what about vengeance for the, for the sins they were committing against God through trying to harm David? Where's the vengeance for that? Because guys, for the most part, vengeance doesn't occur in this life. So does that mean it doesn't occur? I say, well, not at all. If you and I pray for those who try to harm us today, we're doing exactly what Jesus said. In fact, Guys, uh, persecuted Christians around the world, that's exactly what they do. It's not against slights and insults. It's against somebody murdered my spouse. Somebody burned my house. I can't go to the village I used to live in because they won't let me stay there. Things like that. They're praying just like Jesus told them to do. And we should do the same. Now, if, if that person, let's just say that person's trying to harm you and you pray for them, and the, the best thing that can happen for them is their salvation, right? Forgiveness of sin and life forever. So if that person persecuting you repents and believes in Jesus for salvation, where is God's vengeance for their sinful actions against you? Where is God's vengeance for their sinful actions against you? Does that mean there's no vengeance from God on their sin? We say, well, no, not at all. God's vengeance was fully met for their sin in Christ on the cross. Jesus paid for their sins. But guys, here's the flip side. If Christ didn't bear the vengeance due their sins, they're going to bear God's vengeance in eternity. And so today when we pray, the best good anyone can have is to come to saving faith in Christ. It's to humble themselves, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. If they don't do that, they will stand before Christ and Jesus will mete out the perfect vengeance, the just wrath and judgment of God on their sin forever. In the second death, the lake of fire. They'll face Jesus, Revelation 20, at the great white throne. And he'll read off the, the, the litmus list of this is what you've done. And this is my anger towards that sin, whether it's against other believers of God or not. But you see, God is a God of vengeance. 
He's a God of perfect, righteous judgment against sin. And David knows that. So in this case, these guys are opposing God and God's man and God's plans. And David prays God's judgment on them. We're praying that those who persecute sinners turn saints like ourselves. We're praying for sinners that they come to faith. And if they do, God's wrath has been satisfied in Christ. If they don't, it will be satisfied at the judgment seat of Christ. I want to say, too, on this, this subject, uh, two things before I forget. You know, I marked up my study sheet uh, late, so I'm scrambling here on this page because it's all marked up. Uh, Hebrews 10.26, I'll just throw this in, and then a final thought. Uh, Hebrews 10 is a terrifying passage. And the epistle to the Hebrews is a terrifying book. For people that make a pretense of faith in Christ and then don't. And in Hebrews 10, this language of vengeance is brought up about people who said, Jesus and me, we're okay until I say, oh, we're not. And Hebrews 10, 26 through 31, about rejecting Jesus, the text says, vengeance is mine. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. For a while I said, Jesus is okay, I'll follow him. And now I say, he's not all that, so I won't. And it's in that context of formerly professing Christians that the, the writer warns, you're facing the terrifying wrath and vengeance of the living God. It's written to religious people, folks. That's the point. Or formerly religious people. Uh, one other thing before I move on. One of the important lessons in life David made a prayer about those who are harming him. And then he can go on. And guys, you and I want to make sure we don't do this. There's a temptation when someone or someone, specifically people, are trying to harm us, we start taking our cues from them. And that's wrong. Have you ever been cut off in traffic and the rest of your day is ruined by the idiot that drove in front of you? And then do you realize that you're the idiot? Because you're taking your cues from the idiot driver that cut you off? We don't want to do that. And so if somebody's trying to harm us, we don't want to be taking our cues for life from them. So pray about them. Pray for them. Pray about your situation. Don't make them your goal or your focus. Then we get back on with what God wants us to do. Because remember, David's still going to come back and he's going to have a country to rule. God still has things for him to do. So we don't want to get so caught up in focusing on those people that are trying to harm us that we, we quit doing the things God called us to do. Pray for them, pray about it, and get on with what God's called us to do. Uh, verses 8 through 11, uh, David knows that in the midst of his trouble, God's taking care of him. Uh, this, this is probably my favorite section of the psalm. Uh, verse 8, you've kept count of my tossings or wanderings you've kept count it's like you've watched each one and you've recorded it and God doesn't have to do that of course but David says it's like you've counted everything that's been done against me you've kept count of my tossings put my tears in your bottle are they not in your book then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call this I know that God is for me in God, whose word I praise, reiteration of what, verses 3 and 4, in God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, in Yahweh, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? 
Even as David prays, he knows that he's in God's keeping care. Uh, verse 8, uh, God knows David's uh, ESV is tossings. It's not like tossing over on a bed. Uh, wanderings is a, a translation used in, in other Bibles, other translations. That's probably a better word. But the thought is it's back and forth. Lord, in this, this situation in life where I'm going one place and then another, I'm trying this and then I'm trying that. God's counted those up, all my fleeing and all my attempts to escape trouble. God's aware of every one of them. It's as if he's done inventory and he knows exactly what's going on. And then look at, I love this phrase, put my tears in a bottle. So David, he's, he's in tough times, right? He's weeping before the Lord. He's crying. This is not okay. And he says, Lord, would you take note of how much I'm suffering, what this means, and would you, as it were, would you collect my tears and keep them? Jews have a, there's little uh, containers they have which are, uh, I think they call them jars of remembrance, and it comes from this text. It's that thought that God is so aware of what's going on, it's as if he would collect all of our tears in a little bottle and hold them. Now, there's a passage, 2 Kings 20, verse 5, this is not in your study sheet, which speaks exactly to this. So David, take my tears, Lord. Be, be aware of what's going on. In 2 Kings 20, Hezekiah is sick, and Isaiah the prophet comes to him and says, hey, this sickness is to death. You're going down. Get your house in order. And then he leaves. And the text says that Hezekiah turns to the wall. He's lying on his bed. And he weeps and he prays. He's still a relatively young man. He doesn't want to die. He weeps and he prays. And then God taps Isaiah and says, hey, go back inside. And Isaiah goes back in and he talks to Hezekiah and he says, this is the thing. God says he's heard your prayer. And God says he sees your tears. Just like this psalm. That nothing you're experiencing in this moment escapes God's notice. He's, he's intimately acquainted with your suffering, what's going on. And that's David's thought here. Lord, would you be fully aware and cognizant? Would you comfort me when my tears are flowing? Would you take note of them? Just like in Hezekiah's life. Verse 9, David is confident that the result of his faith in God and his Christ to God for help will be deliverance from the enemy. And guys, verse 9, uh, my enemies will turn back in the day when I call just the second part. Do you want a memory verse? This is a memory verse. In fact, just say verse 9b. This I know. What do I know? That God is for me. If Psalm 56 was that line, this I know, that God is for me. And all I have is the reference line to say this is what was going on. That'd be pretty good, wouldn't it? This I know, that God is for me. You could write a book on that. You could sing songs about that. Put in context... The God who spoke the cosmos into existence out of nothing. The God who led Israel throughout all the Old Testament. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Jesus and resurrection says, we say of him because we're in a relationship, this I know, God is for me. That'd be a good way to start the day. That'd be a good way to end the day. That's certainly a good way to face the challenges that come up, right? This I know. There's a lot of things we might say, I don't know. How am I going to get out? What am I going to do? I don't know. But this I know. God is for me. I wonder if Paul was thinking about that verse when he wrote Romans 8.31. If God is for us, 
Who can be against us? That's the theme of these verses. If God is for me, then what can man do to me? It's almost a paraphrase of Psalm 56. If God is for us, who can be against us? So memorize that. Verse 9b. Verses 10 and 11, a restatement of David's abiding trust in the Lord. And by the way, these are easy to memorize too, right? It's repetitive. In God whose word I praise. In the Lord or in Yahweh whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? What can the circumstances of life do to me if God is for me? Do we as God's children know the loving, careful, keeping care God has for us? This is Psalm 103 verse 13. As a father shows compassion or pity to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to his children. God's heart towards us in Christ is compassion, it's mercy, it's grace. It's exactly what David was praying for. Verse 12 and 13, uh, David says, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you've delivered my soul from death my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. So either David is so confident of God delivering him, future tense, he he writes about it past tense, or even as he's writing and composing the song, deliverance has come, so now it's a possession. God has delivered me. Verse 12 implies that David made vows. This was common for Jews. It's not something we do so much today. God, if you will do A, I will give thanks by doing B. And he says offerings for the Jews. That would have been, I'm coming to the tabernacle or the temple. I'm bringing an offering, a goat or a sheep or a, or a cow or whatever. And I'm offering it as a thanksgiving to God. Now, those are costly. Christian, we don't do that, but we should have that same attitude of, Lord, I'm giving you thanks for what you've done. We should give God thanks every day anyway. But this is specifically in light of deliverance. And then verse 13, God has delivered David so that he continues to Walk before God in the place of blessing. Almost done here, but I want to focus on this briefly. Walk before God. So verse 13, let's see. So that uh, my feet from from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. That's a loaded phrase, that I may walk before God. That has meaning for David. Genesis 17.1, which no doubt David knew. God said to Abraham, walk before me and be blameless be perfect that's like later in leviticus the lord your god is holy i am holy so you be holy so it's also quoted by david in first kings not second kings first kings 2 verse 4 when he's passing the baton of rule and faith to solomon he brings up that same phrase where god had said to him if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness With all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So this was a call. David says, I have this renewed determination, Lord, when you deliver me, to I'm going to walk before you in a way that pleases you. I'm going to do your will. I'm more focused than ever. When you've delivered me, I've met with you in this trial. And when I come out, as I trust I will, you're going to deliver me. I'm more determined than ever to honor you by all that I do, all that I say, a walk before you that represents who you are. So the challenges David faced in the frying pan of Saul's attempts on his life and the fire of Gath could have left him sullen. You ever been like this? Depressed, unhappy with God, 
the way he was running his life. But he refused those temptations, and friends, we should too. Pharaoh thought he would crush the Jews between the rock of his army and the hard place of the Red Sea, only to see his army destroyed and Israel walking free. Man did his absolute worst evil in the crucifixion of Jesus, and Jesus rose from the dead. There's no rock, there's no hard place, there's no frying pan or fire that can keep us from God's loving compassion and His never-ending, compassionate, diligent, fatherly care for us. No matter what's going on, you have it. This we know, God is for us. David's response to God's deliverance was thanksgiving and worship, a renewed dedication to please God in all ways. So read Psalm 56, and let's make that our determination as well. So rise if you would. I want to read uh, in closing from Psalm 34, verses 1 through 3. This was the parallel psalm. This came out of that same experience. David had. Let's read that together. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together.